Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Pathology is a very visual field, and since we often have to transmit that information without pictures, we learn to be very descriptive with words. So it's no surprise then that many in pathology have taken up writing as well. My guest today is Bruce Kep. Bruce is a retired pathologist assistant, and he's also an author. Today, we're going to talk about his latest book, Pitfall, how he got into writing, and we'll go through his career as a pathologist assistant. All right, here's Bruce Kep. Now, we're going to talk mostly about your new book, which is called Pitfall. But before we get into that, I want to start with, with uh, let, let's get to know you a little bit better and kind of the, the course of your career. So let's go all the way back, start at the beginning. Now, I know you're an on-the-job trained pathologist assistant like I am. So I'm curious how that began for you. Like, how did you discover the pathology field? Well, I was kind of a college nerd. Um Always drawn to comparative anatomy or dissection, fetal pigs, cats, things like that. Uh, but free time away from nickel beer nights, I would page through the ancient Boyd's pathology text at the school library. And, you know, black and white photos have a lot to be desired. But I knew I didn't want to become a medical doctor. So I took a veterinary entrance exam, and I did well enough to consider Ames or Tulane. Maybe a researcher in a laboratory or exotic, had an exotic ring to it, discovering parasites or cures for cancer. I remember back in high school being recruited by a professional writers group out of Chicago. Uh, somewhere along the line, I'd submitted an essay and got reviewed by a higher up. He even came to meet me on the farm. My parents and I sat at the kitchen table as he went through his spiel. I was young and scared. My dad nixed that idea right away. Other things I was interested in came later in life, I guess. I became a football official after coaching for many years, and that kind of highlights for me. Uh, but looking back, had I followed this path earlier, it would have been a great opportunity to do college or NFL officiating. So you knew that you didn't want to become a medical doctor. How did you specifically then discover that pathologist assistant field, because that was really new at the time. It was very new. Um, you know, in the eyes of a hospital laboratory, I was a laboratory path assistant. I was a morgue attendant, a mortician, a histotech. They couldn't pigeonhole me to their satisfaction. And it was very, very frustrating. And even my parents didn't understand what I did. But long ago, far, far beyond <laughs> the universe, there was this chief of pathology in Denver Hospital who read of this new profession based on the defunct Yale program. And he paralleled the protocol, including autopsies and grossing, because he was considering no more residents. That was my first true pathology job. I wasn't allowed to bump the grossing residents, but I became quite proficient at autopsies. In fact, so much that the residents who hated to go to the morgue would let me be their eyes, their forceps, their scissors, and their scalpel. Their attendant would come in for the final summary, and I would stand in the background absorbing the interaction, totally mum, but we all did eye winks at each other. After a couple of years, my wife and I moved to San Francisco, where I drove up and down the peninsula selling myself. You know, most had never heard of PAs. 
Eventually, I finally got a position as a pathology lab assistant. The routine, picking up specimens, accessioning, cassette labeling, slide filing, cytoprep, frozen sections, tissue disposal. You know, you know what it's all about. But no grossing. I did one autopsy in two years. But I continued to study, look at slides on my own. Basically, it took another seven years until a hospital in Napa employed me as a real PA. I'm one of the original AAPA members from the late 70s. I think back, John Mitchell, Leo Kelly, Steve Savalsky, Ray Rader. And later did I become aware that only there are six of us PAs in the state of California. And we'd share our war stories, try to make a go of it. Passing this AAP exam gave me legitimacy. So it, it sounds like fairly early on that you became interested in autopsies, and that was more out of necessity because you weren't allowed to gross. Or, or was it necessity and, and you were interested in it as well? I was originally hired as a deaner. Okay. That employee term didn't relate to what I was doing, but they had to they had to book me art bookmark me in somewhere for personnel, and that's what they put me as. And and you stuck with that and eventually became like you were sort of like an independent contractor for autopsies. Is that is that kind of an accurate way to put it? That only happened later in my career. Um, okay. So I was basically a laboratory person, laboratory and I worked in pathology and worked in histology. So can you kind of take us then from working in pathology and histology to what became then the, the autopsy career? I was always looking to further my education. And there was this new university called Columbia Pacific that was developing an academic and work experience degree program for credit. And the forensic program was supported by the chief county coroners of both San Francisco, who was Dr. Boyd Stevens, and San Mateo, who was Dr. Peter Benson. Both retired now. Dr. Boyd is, is, has passed years ago, but Dr. Benson's still alive, but retired. Dr. Sidney Moymeister was my mentor, and she allowed me to literally customize my program. That was really cool. Believe it or not, my thesis was an online pathology program filled with textbook study, work experience, and creative writing essays. To me, that was the exact fit. The doctorate degree was what I wanted to open other doors. And years later, I was introduced to Tina Rader, who offered me to teach the Drexel students on the West Coast Sacramento campus. Personally, I never liked being classified as someone's assistant, nor ever introduced myself as one. I wanted to ask you about the teaching aspect of the, the Drexel West Coast campus. Can you tell me about that? Like, what type of things were you teaching and, and did you enjoy that experience? Uh, teaching at Drexel, I enjoyed it immensely. I taught the PAs uh, grossing. I did the whole pathology textbook gamut. We did illustrations. We did um, demonstrations. I had them come to an autopsy a couple of times with me when I watched and they would watch and some of them got their gloves on and didn't back away. They put their hands out and started holding actual tissues. So it's very cool. Very rewarding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine. Okay. Now you were, you were talking about the kind of, I think that the PA pro or the PhD, the, your doctorate program, 
what was the, what was the PhD in? It was in forensic science with a pathology specialty. Okay. And that was like you were intending to get into autopsies at, at that point then? Was that what that was supposed to be for? Well, I was working with um, county coroners. Um, and so autopsies was the primary. But it was a period in my life where I needed to find and secure good employment. So surgical pathology was was the big was the key ingredient because a lot of hospitals were starting to dwindle down their autopsy needs. And after later on in my career, I started to work with a private autopsy group. And that's basically where I ended up. Okay, I see. And that was you were traveling around, I think, right? For for yes. that. Yeah, I traveled around the the country. Um I did autopsies in most states. I did. I flew into um, Providence, Rhode Island, one midnight one time, and it was snowing. It was like picturesque mountain mountain settings, big flakes on the highway. And I did an autopsy at twelve thirty at uh, past midnight. And I got on the plane the next morning at five o'clock and flew back. Oh wow! Okay. Fortunately, that didn't happen a lot, but it did. Um, we weren't budgeted for a lot of long-term layovers. So there was a lot of flying in late, doing the case, middle of the night, going back to the hotel to clean up and get back to the airport to fly out within about 12 hours. Oh, wow. That, that must have been rough. It was. It was, it was, it was tough. But then you'd land back here in California and you'd check your, uh, your voicemails and there'd be another one. The next day or two days later in another at another airport, another airplane. So it was a it was a fly by the by your seat of your pants, literally. Okay. And and then like how many years did you do this kind of work? I did that for about fifteen the last fifteen years, probably fifteen, twenty years. Oh wow. And the reason I got into that, or the reason it, it hooked me is because, um, number one, uh, hospitals were, were, hospital autopsy rates were declining. Pathologists didn't like to do them because they didn't get reimbursed. So they never liked to go into the morgue. Our morgues became storage facilities like most hospital morgues are. You know, they're filled with slides and yeah. boxes and everything else. So when I would, uh, as a traveler, when I go to these hospitals to do autopsies, I have to make my way through the obstructions just to find the morgue table. And then they never had instruments. So I, I, it's a good thing I packed everything. So learned the hard way. You got to bring everything along because you won't be able to find it, including striker saws. But the reason I got into it was uh, the reason I, I liked it as much as I did is because the private portion is we're employed by the families, the next of kin, and they're the ones that really want to know. They're you know when uh, their loved one dies, the first thing they do is is anger. When they're if they die in a hospital setting, it's anger. Someone poisoned them, or someone didn't take care of them, and they want to they want to reach out and attack somebody. You know, so. With the private portion, we can help them get through that grieving process because we give them the facts. We don't 
have an emotional attachment or, or an unemotional attachment. And that's all they really want is someone to tell them what happened. They're not out to litigate. They, that, that's kind of a verbal indication, but basically they just want someone to tell them how it happened. And most of the time it's natural. This brings up an interesting point because I've spoken with a few forensic pathologists and they kind of have a similar story that, you know, even though you're not really speaking with the patient because the patient is deceased, but you are speaking quite a bit with the family and you're trying to help them through uh, the grieving process as, as much as you can. And it sounds like you have, I mean, I know you're not a forensic pathologist, but you've kind of had a similar experience. That's correct. Um, there was one case, I, I was thinking when you, when you talk about that, I was thinking about working as a private uh, autopsy service. Most of our cases were done in funeral homes because that's where the body would go anyway after the hospital. So our offices, my office was a funeral home anywhere and it could be rural, it could be residential, it could be citywide. But this one place I went, this man's wife died uh, unexpectedly, but she had a lot of health issues going in. And he sat outside the door of the morgue on a folding chair and waited for me to come back out when I was done. He sat there. I introduced myself when I got there. And he waited for me when I got out. And when I came out and told him what I felt was, I couldn't tell him too much, but I wanted to tell him I didn't see anything that was unnatural. It looked like she had a good life. And he hugged me and he started to cry. And I felt like this, this is a really good thing that I've found. And that's how I latched onto it. Yeah, that kind of makes it all... I almost say rewarding sounds like the wrong word, but it's something like that. Mm -hmm. I want to go on a, a bit of a tangent here because we're, we want to get into your kind of writing career. And so your first book was called Heel Strike. And this was a story with kind of the background of, of trail running, which is interesting to me because I know we're both we're both trail runners, which is a crazy sport. So I want to start there like. How did, how did you get involved in trail running? Um, first of all, did you not dust me in that Lynch Canyon run about three years ago before the pandemic? <laughs> I, were, those I your, were those your heels in front of me? I'm pretty sure I've never dusted anyone. <laughs> <laughs> there weren't high heels, were they? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> they were race-specific. <laughs> well, you know, like, like most of us, we always, we, we got into team sports, you know, in those days. And, but I never stopped running. You know, it's, I like that challenge of the race, the deer trails, dodging boulders. And, you know, it comes with a bloody learning lesson quite often. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Running is actually my true addiction, I think. I never, I never go into a race for fun. I never do a fun run. They call it fun run, but. It doesn't apply to me when I get at the starting line. Mm -hmm. And as I get older, uh, men's league softball and basketball just didn't hold a candle to that sound of the starter pistol or the adrenaline rush. Each race is its own entity. And after a period of middle of the pack finishes, I now try to place in the first 20 probably or first three in my age group. 
And presently, my age group is the handicapped division of pregnant women. They wear leg casts and push toddlers and strollers. And I'm very competitive at that level. Problem is, I can't seem to keep my cigar lit at the final point. Okay. Like, what about what about distance? What kind of distances are you running? You know, thank you for laughing. I was wondering if you're paying attention. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I go middle distances because I don't have two hours to run every day. And, and I don't want my knees to leave my body when I get a little older each year. So middle distances, uh, maybe some duathlons, sprint duathlons, which is a run, bike, run. I'm a terrible swimmer, but if I didn't have to breathe, I'd be a great swimmer. So mm, I stick okay. with that a level. Okay. Yeah. So part of the reason I wanted to talk about the trail running aspect was that for me anyways, when I'm out running, it's, you know, especially out like, really out of the way place. Like it's very, it's almost meditative, I guess. And you get to thinking about a lot of different things and, you know, sometimes you'll have your, your best ideas out there in the middle of the run. Is that kind of similar for you? Yeah. 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 I, uh, when I'm running, if I've written in the morning and then, um, I'll go for a run in the afternoon. That's when I start thinking about, yeah, where, where am I going to take this story or what did I not explain in the, what I wrote this morning or something like that. Yeah. That's, that's the perfect opportunity to, to, for me to reflect on what I'm doing right now, what I'm writing about right now. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. Like it, and you just said, you, you know, you write and then you think about it while you're running which to me makes perfect sense. Well, let's, let's go back even a little bit farther than that. So when, when was it that you started writing and kind of what influenced you to become a writer? I read a lot of books, probably 20 a year, maybe. Um, and the more I read, the more I find myself escaping into the story, if it catches my interest. I study word selection, prose, syntax, dialogue. It's not all just reading. Sometimes I'm looking for phrases and metaphors. I see how the, the sentences flow and why the author puts a comma here, or a period there, simple things like that. I started writing on weekends, and weekends begat short stories and poems and sometimes evolved into a little bit longer stories. I've got a whole laptop full of those. Some of them are some of them I'm still very proud of. Descriptive narratives are probably my favorite, and I prefer reading about uh, aging protagonists who've learned personal meanings of failure along the way. You know, we all have got that that weak spot. And that's a good source for me to find people who are, who have something to resolve. But I want a picture first, not page after page of fancy dialogue. Uh, Heel Strike took basically a couple years to finish. And it has its weaknesses, but I knew how to make amends on the next pieces I would write. If you want to know, I have only a few favorite authors. I'm not I'm not big into popular authors. I don't I don't even pick up those books at the Costco or the bookshops. Mm -hmm. Would you be interested in finding who they might be? I would, actually, yes. Okay. There are only three that come to mind right off the top. Um, James Lee Burke, you probably heard of him, B-U-R-K-E. He writes detective novels, uh, and his protagonist is Dave Robichaud. And 
and this this guy is is great. He lives in Louisiana, so there's that Louisiana drawl. There's that delta knowledge that comes out in every one of his characters. It's really really fun to read. Um, Michael Connelly, that's the Harry Bosch novels. He's become very popular now, but the original Harry Bosch novels were really gray, um, and it always involved mysterious police reporting or mysterious police brutality and things like that that never came to the surface back in the 80s and 90s. And there's a there's a writer called T. Jefferson Parker. He lives in Southern California, and um, he has a way of describing that part of the state, which if you've ever been down there and driven through the beach sides of Malibu and Capistrano, all the way down San Diego, he's got some real raw uh, stories about life on the coast. And I like reading his. I'll, I'll pick up any of these three authors' books, sight unseen. That's how good I like, that's how good I like it. Pitfall itself, if you're interested, I started that about six months after Heel Strike was published. It took less rough draft time, but the good editing took another year. Um, I feel like I'm disciplined now to a point that guilt sets in if I haven't put at least two hours on my laptop. After lunch, I read out in the sun or take online courses, and they could be anything from art history to learning a new language to hip-hop dancing. I'm a crazy person now, Dennis. At the end of the day, I'll probably go for a training run or a bike ride, maybe share a glass of wine with Mrs. Cap. Maybe we'll go out to dinner with friends. And I've, Don't tell anybody this, but I've even been known to doze in front of the TV. <laughs> okay. It's a tough life, but someone has to do it, right? Right. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Bruce Cap. We'll be right back. LabVine is building a team to help lab medicine professionals live their best lives. Now, these are commission-based sales positions, and the only requirement is that you're passionate about helping people, especially laboratorians. I'll have a link in the show notes where you can email for more information or just watch the LabVine social media pages. Also, this month on LabVine, there are some great resources for managing laboratory finances. These topics include financial management, financial statements, budgets, controlling costs, and making financial decisions. And you can find these at LabVine by following the link in the show notes. Dress a Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress a Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Bruce Kep on the People of Pathology podcast. Okay, so when you're when you're in a writing project, you're writing every day. Is that your method? Yes, I um, actually, yeah, I'll yeah. In a writing project, that's the correct way to put it. If I'm in a writing project, I'll I'll get on it every day, at least okay. two hours minimum. Wow, that's that's dedication. When I first started, I'd I'd write a story and then let it ferment, walk away, you know. But now, I'm finding it much more rewarding if I spend a little bit more detail and go back to this, the story, the, back to the day I wrote and do it again. Next day, go back to that day I wrote and do it again. 
And I'm finding I'm getting things a lot better, more, uh, more story now than, than just lines on a paper. Why don't we start talking about the new book then, Pitfall, which now this came out in January, late January 2021. Yes. All right. Now, the story is about a traveling forensic pathologist. And so I, I kind of want get, to get into the main character. So this is Dr. Kevin Michaels. And, and the reason is it, it seems like his background is partially based on you because he's originally from Minnesota, as are you. He lives in California now, as do you. He's a trail runner like you are. So how much of Dr. Kevin Michaels is based on you? And for the rest of that, is that based on other people or did you in, invent that part? There is fact into fiction. That's, that's true. But other than being a farm kid from Minnesota and living in California, it's mostly fiction. Um, I'm drawn especially to the Midwestern culture. You know, everyone makes fun of stoic Scandinavians with old family values or the Germans who cluster like a secret clan at family reunions. I incorporate my medical background into a fish-out-of-water professional who once had ties to this part of the country. Readers are a very selective group. A good cover in a synopsis on the back of the book can go a long ways. I'm aware that it's not glamorous like New York or Los Angeles, but it's my story. I'm sticking with it. Just out of curiosity, what part of Minnesota did you grow up in? If you draw a straight line west from Minneapolis, I'm raised in the farm country right at the South Dakota border between uh, Montevideo and Canby, if you know where those towns are. And if you don't, if you don't, I understand why. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I, I lived all my life here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, so I kind of understand the, the Midwest uh, aspect. And, and you've got some sort of references to that uh, throughout the book, which I, to me were amusing because they're, they're exactly true. The, the other thing about Dr. Dr. Michaels is you kind of allude to this backstory that he has, and you never really tell the whole story, things that kind of happened in his past that mm -hmm. kind of um, set him on a, on a certain path to where he is. Did you have his backstory kind of planned out or written out somewhere, or did you create that as you went along? I, I prefer to create as I go along. I do take some notes once in a while, but the notes I take are post notes. Um, after I've written and shut down the laptop for the day, and then as my mind goes back and thinks about it, I'll come back that night and write these on a piece of paper, and then the next day I'll be editing. But, yeah, I, I, I kind of fly at the seat of my pants with these characters. Actually, I wanted to ask you about one of the other characters, Tessa, she's kind of the other main character. Uh, is, is she entirely fictional or is she based on, on someone as well? No, she's entirely fictional. Um, as is her, her sister. Okay. I see. As all are right. all the other characters at the resort. Oh, really? Okay. Mm -hmm. that's, that's interesting. Cause some of them are pretty colorful. <laughs> Uh, let's talk about your writing style because you really paint a picture of, of the scenes throughout the book. Your, your style is very descriptive. It's, it's, it's visual. 
so knowing your background and reading the book, I thought, all right, how does one practice, you know, descriptive writing? And it seems like, and you mentioned descriptive narratives a little bit earlier. Those are your favorite kind of stories. I mean, it seems to me you don't get more of a descriptive narrative than from a gross description. So I'm curious if you think that your, your career as a PA kind of helped your writing style. Does that, does that make sense? Yes, there is that, of course. You know, I was trained as a PA, like we all were, to be descriptive to a point, but yet not over the top with a lot of flowing adjectives. The book has a, you know, it's about a forensic pathologist and there are forensic aspects to it and and kind of general pathology aspects to it, but it's not overly weighted down. Like a lot of books in this sort of genre, they're too technical and Pitfall doesn't have that. Was that deliberate on your part to, you wanted to write about forensic pathology, but not in a sort of didactic way? Was that deliberate? Yeah. Yes, Dennis. That's that's definitely the way. Um, My intention was to write a romantic thriller, but it needed a few tidbits of professional background, you know, as to why it was important for the reader's interest. Um, I compared it to cop shows where there's, worthless dialogue and they are driving in cars and talking it over and over. Those things don't happen in the countless breaking down of doors and the camera leads these cops into dark corridors. And um, I'm always amazed that toxicology and fingerprinting can come back in a matter of an hour. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, these, these actors don't require helmets or face shields, but everybody else behind them has one on. I guess it has to do with their hair or makeup. Maybe in my opinion, most of these so-called medical thrillers have a short shelf life, and they don't hold my interest after a few pages. Science genre in general doesn't sell very well to the reading public. I think of it as a curse beyond the saturation point. They all want the quick in-and-out stories. No one wants to sit down and settle in with a, a novel anymore. As you were writing and then kind of going through the editing process, did you ever find yourself going, you know what? like something you'd written and you go, you know what, that's not how it would really happen. I try not to get cynical with my writing. Writers are not, I've learned, are not supposed to voice opinions if you're writing fiction. And that's a really good modem to live by. So no, I I catch myself if I find, if I'm going to be preachy. Kind of the the last, last thing I'm going to talk about then is the ending without giving away anything, but so it seems like the end of the book seems like a true end of the story. But there are a couple sort of loose ends that are still there. So I'm curious if you've got plans for like like a sequel to Pitfall. Um, there is a sequel to Heel Strike coming out. I'm working on that right now because uh, Heel Strike was a short-lived story. I wanted to make it better than it was. Okay. Um, but lots of people have asked me that same question about Pitfall. You know, what happens to so-and-so? Is there going to be a sequel? So I guess the story hooked them in some degree. To me, the answer is not yet. Although this story is not unique in plot standards, it should simmer in the reader's minds. Um, hopefully, my chapters urge them into a few more pages. I've taken them to a place most will never experience. And for me, that's a compliment. And amazingly, reviews have been positive. My third novel is being edited, and I hope to have that out 
by late winter 2022. And the start of the fourth story, which is Heel Strike 2, I started that about a couple months ago. I will hint that the third novel is based in the North Dakota Badlands, and the fourth is in the British Isles. Writing for me is therapeutic, Dennis, and it's very rewarding. And by the way, my pen name, Bruce Rudin, mm-hmm. um, it's easier to pronounce than Bruce Kep. I've had people never can get my last name. Um, so I've changed it just a little bit so it can, it can be easier to, to catch phrase. Uh, Ruben was my dad's name. So that's an honor of him. Oh, okay. That, that makes perfect sense now. I was wondering about that. All right. Uh, now you mentioned the, the book three and book four. Actually, you mentioned the, in the, the British Isles. Is that somewhere that, that you've been? Um, I love British history. I love uh, reading about it, uh, how it is BC history, and they've had so many wars and so many different worldly leaders have tried to capture it, and they always seem to get through it. And I like the British jargon a lot. Um, it's, it sounds silly most of the time, and it is. They're making fun of things. But no, I have never been to British Isles, but I thought this is a chance to uh, do a gothic story from a non-traveling perspective. I'll see how it goes. Mm, Okay. Well, we look forward to that. In in the show notes for this episode, I'll definitely include a link to where people can pick up Pitfall. It's a great book. It was a real page turner, especially the last, I don't know, maybe five or six chapters uh, when things started moving really fast. So I, I really enjoyed it. Is there anything else you'd, you'd like to mention before we, we kind of wrap up the, the episode? Yeah, if you, if you don't mind, I'd like to... Um, yeah, go ahead. I'd like to address um, future and fellow PAs on a couple things that I've learned along the way. As And, you know, I'm a retired sage pathologist assistant now, so I really know a lot. Okay. But <laughs> these are a couple things that I thought you know, helped me get through some rough bumps in my professional career. So maybe they'll touch base with these folks too. Um, I've kind of listed them off. So we'll see. Well, there aren't that many. Number one, I thought was uh, important was be in control of your own destiny and avoid, avoid the assembly line attitude of quantity over quality. Maintain a thoroughness and efficiency at the same time. My claim to fame uh, as a PA was that I was knowledgeable, I was experienced, but I was fast. I could I could knock out 40 cases in four to six hours, and they were both larges and smalls and biopsies. And because of that, pathologists would trust me, and I could hit all those bases every day. Another thing I think about was you have to interact with your coworkers daily. You have to get feedback, and don't dwell on negativity. With someone, you walk in in the morning, you go, hey, how's your day? And the person goes, oh. You don't want to know. That's when you want to, you don't want to know. That's when you don't want to know. <laughs> so that just dragged me down sometimes. Uh, here's, here's one that really dragged me down. And I don't know how it's going to hit, it's going to hit people at a home run or not, but avoid union representation at all costs. Continue to, continue to learn, get involved. If you have an opportunity to teach, please do it. Show patience, um, smile until it hurts, 
And this is the one that really helped me through the, the rough periods. And that is get a life away from the cutting board. Mm-hmm. And as you know, the protagonist in Pitfall didn't have one. Right. And readers knew how that, know how that went. Because of the pandemic, Dennis, uh, author signings and meet and greets have become a lost cause. So I've had an opportunity to, to do this for o- almost a year. So in my closet, I have a case of paperbacks looking for new owners, and I'm willing to sell them at $15, including postage. So if you're interested for that special gift under the Christmas tree, please contact me. I have a website called Soft Editions BR, that's for Brace Rubin, at gmail.com. That's Soft Editions BR at gmail.com. And if anybody's willing to talk to me or ask me more questions, um, I'll be glad to talk to them, offer my services as a story coach, or give them uh, simple, brief editing ideas. I'm not going to be an editor, but I'll, I can direct them how to make the story more effectively, I think. So anything like that, I'd be glad to help. Okay. I, I love it. That's I'll include your, your contact information in the show notes. And th- that's some great advice for, uh, you know, future and current uh, PAs. So this this has been a really interesting episode. I appreciate your time. So Bruce Kep, thank you very much. I appreciate it too. Thank you. Great. Big thanks to Bruce Kep. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy. And then I'll be back with some final thoughts on this episode. One thing that is true about both books, though, is that we tend to put the science first. We put the clues out based on the science, and then we build the plot around the science. It's not unusual for us. In fact, we just recently came off of a email uh, tour for a writer's group where they would email us questions about how can I cause a wound that would allow my plot to develop in this direction? <laughs> and I was, I said to oh. TJ, she, you know, the, this this particular writer is uh, trying to find a wound to fix, to mi- a wound to match the plot versus making a plot to match the wound <laughs> and and we do we do the latter we usually pick the wounds first and then have the plot grow as a result of the science as right. a result of the injuries and i'll tell you one thing that was really gratifying of, of working off of that long outline is when i finally when i sat down to actually do the writing i printed the outline out and i would go through it and every time i finished an item i would just cross it out with a red pen and <laughs> when i got to the bottom i shredded it right because i don't want you know it's Because the book has transformed from that outline idea into the thing that was on the page. You can hear more from Dr. Judy Melanick and TJ Mitchell in episode 47. So this one was really interesting. Well, first of all, for me, just to get a little bit of the historical background of the early days of pathologist assistance, but also I've known Bruce for a couple of years now. We were involved with the same committee uh, for the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. But this is the first time we've actually spoken to each other outside of email. So that was really fun to do. And it's just another example of if you get involved with your professional organizations, these are the kind of people that you're going to meet and the kind of relationships that you're going to form. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today, including links to his book. I really enjoyed Pitfall. It was a great story and it was a real page turner, like I said in the episode. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path or connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. It was two years ago as of this episode that I started this podcast having no idea where it was going to go. And it's because of everyone who is listening 
and who shared the show with others that has grown to what it is today. So thank you again. And together, let's continue to inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.